Are you ready for some more XFL? Welcome back to XFL Extra, the podcast brought to you by XFLboard.com. I'm your host, Mark Nelson, and this is our 21st episode. In this episode, you will hear from Mike Mitchell. Mike is a writer and a sports analyst, and he has been involved with XFLboard.com since 2001. He is one of two reporters that covers the New York Guardians for XFLboard. Today, we will talk with Mike about the end of XFL training camps, projections of the final 52-man rosters, XFL officiating, Team 9, ticket sales, and Vegas predictions. Then we will talk about the New York Guardians, their roster, and about recent trades that have involved the team. I call this podcast, Are You Ready? It's about a league making final preparations for play and fans and others making predictions about the football product they expect to see on the field. We are so ready. There are 13 days until XFL kickoff. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome Mike Mitchell to the podcast. Many of you know Mike for his insightful articles about the XFL and is one of the XFLboard.com team reporters for the New York Guardians. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me on. Good to have you on again. You've been on this podcast, uh, I think this will be your fourth time, and every time it's been a wonderful experience. I, I think we should talk about the XFL first, and then let's then we'll shift the conversation and talk about the Guardian specifically, right. if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so first of all, the big news, the biggest news with the XFL is the combined training camps in Houston are over. Now, overall, do you think this, did this work out for the XFL? I think it did in terms of quality of play. Um, it was a smart play to put all the teams in one location, have them practice against one another. And um, I think in terms of that element, I think it worked. In terms of the teams connecting with their local markets, perhaps you could have argued that each one of the XFL teams could have uh, done training camp in their own local areas to boost up attention for the teams. But I think it was a trade-off. I think the XFL had to decide which model to go for. Um, and I think they chose the right one ultimately because the league is going to be judged based on the quality of its play. And when you have a brand new league with eight new teams, you need them to, you need them to be as crisp and uh, have as much cohesion as possible come week one. There's going to be a little bit of struggles early on in the season for teams to kind of gel. So you can expect a little bit of sloppy play. But I think the most um, encouraging aspect was how crisp the games looked uh, as far as the live scrimmages go. I think there weren't a lot of penalties. There weren't a lot of turnovers. I think that's a result of these teams working together in minicamp and then obviously working together in Houston. So the scrimmages actually, in one way, they were a practice for the teams themselves. But in another way, they were a practice for the referees and the broadcast crews. It was a unique setup, Mark, because for the XFL teams, it was kind of a dry run, but it was all the week one matchups. So if you're an XFL coaching staff, if you're part of New York or what have you, you didn't want to reveal too much of your week one game plan. So a lot of what they did was vanilla, but it was uh, also a dress rehearsal for the networks and for, very importantly, the referees to get accustomed to the rules and to adjust to the speed of the game, etc. So, um, I think it accomplished, the live scrimmages accomplished those goals of getting everyone up to speed and it helped the players uh, and the teams kind of get an idea of what they're looking at and what type of teams are going to become week one. 
Yeah, those referees are going to be on the spot. Of, of, of all the entities we're talking about, the teams, the referees and the broadcasters, the referees are on the biggest spot because they've got to get it right. And if they don't get it right, they'll be criticized uh, more so than the other than the other parts. Yeah, the league de- the league debuted uh, uh, or at least gave us a sneak preview of the referee uniforms. And to be honest, I, c- I could care less about what they look like. What I care about with the refs is their performance. I mean, uh, if they do a bad job, obviously those uniforms are going to look very ugly. So um, so you can criticize that aspect of it. But the referees, yeah, they do have a tough job. You got um, um, a collection of Division One referees that the XFL has hired. So um, and so these guys are experienced. So it's not just your local uh, plumber coming in and uh, calling the games. So that's important. That's vital. But uh, yeah, they're you know adjusting to the speed of the game and the rules. That's definitely that's why training camp was important for them too. Yeah, exactly. So uh, adjusting to the speed of the game is important because they're the ones that have to keep that speed or keep the game moving uh, throughout the game uh, between each play, especially. So it's their job to keep it moving. And then to um, you know, and to adjudicate the game properly without yeah, you don't want too the many... referee crews. You don't want the referee crews getting on the field and then arguing over a play or a rule or like having any hiccups in terms of forgetting what a rule is. So they they need to be up to speed on the entire rule book, and they need to like the league wants to speed up the officiating process. They don't want a bunch of stoppages because referees are confused. So right. there's a right. there's pressure on them to perform at a high level too right out the gate. So it's kind of interesting how it works for the entire league. It would be cool to see the first game of the XFL go 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 by without any officiating controversy whatsoever. That would be cool. That would be tremendous. I think in football it's sometimes difficult because there's so many subjective calls. So like what is, you know, it depends what team you're rooting for really. Um so it's like uh that should have been pass interference or that wasn't. I think uh, there might be some of that, but um, I think it's important that they get the egregious calls correctly and they do it in a swift fashion. And it's not in the NFL. Oftentimes it's like a mockery of the game. It slows down momentum five to six minutes of debating over a play that is seems so obvious to anyone who's at home watching. So they need to avoid that. I mean, the NFL had a really bad year on the really bad couple of years, to be honest, as far as officiating goes, they, their crews seem confused and uh, unsure of what to do, which is not good. So we'll look for the XFL officiating to uh, do a better job in that respect, and that would be a plus for the league. Now, cutdown day has been pushed to Monday. Now, why has it been pushed? I, I know there's reasons, but I'm just wondering what your take on this is. Yeah, there are a lot of moving parts right now. I, mean, I think uh, everything is fluid. So, you know, there are lists out there of players that have been cut. Um the teams did cut down to 52, but there's the process of waivers that follows. So uh, organizing that and putting that all together is like a two or three day process. So they didn't want to initially announce the 52 because what ends up happening is there's some players that make the initial 52 that are then released a day or two later because another player is claimed on waivers. It happens in the NFL all the time where I've seen many times where players appear to make the active roster only to be released a few days later. So I think the XFL wanted to make it as clean as possible and not have that um, ambiguity that comes after a day or two or three after cuts happen. So Monday we'll get the official rosters and it should be interesting to see who made the league. But I'll also throw this caveat out there. 
there's still two weeks until the regular season. So because, just because a player made the 52 now doesn't mean that he's going to be on the roster come week one. There could be even changes before the games start. Well, that's exactly what I've been thinking. And one of the reasons why I haven't been talking about or tweeting out any of the players that have told me they're on rosters because I don't want to jinx it for them because they could still be dropped from a roster. Right. And it happens in the, like I mentioned, it happens in the NFL all the time. I've, I've root, I'm a New York Jets fan and I rooted for a player, Greg Dorch, to make the roster, 53 man roster this past season. And it appeared that he did. But then the Jets went ahead and claimed wide receiver from New England, ended up releasing him. He didn't make the roster. So, um, and that's part of football. The bottom end of roster changes so much based on availability. And sometimes if a team has a couple of injuries, they will have to release from another position to add, say, a receiver or what have you. So that's going to be a constant um, process with these rosters where uh, they're going to change a lot during the course of a season. One of the uh, surprises that we uh, saw online was last Wednesday kicker Garrett Hartley tweeted he was joining an XFL team. And he said he would announce the details the next day. And then he didn't. Uh, but then finally on Friday, he said the team was the Seattle Dragons. So he was finally able to to tell the world about his uh, sign. Yeah, word got out. Word got out early. And I actually wrote it in an article um, that he had signed with the Dragons. Word got early, uh, got out early that Garrett Hartley and Taylor Rouza, uh, Tyler Rouza, had signed with the XFL, but their teams weren't revealed. And then Rouser revealed that he had signed with the defenders. Hartley held off on it for a couple of days. It's kind of sensitive in nature because Cole Tracy, who's a very good kicker out of LSU, was released to make room for Garrett Hartley. So, um, you know, a lot of the play the players are aware that they've been uh, released off rosters. They've been informed of it, but uh, they didn't. The XFL didn't want to make it public and, and, until everything was ironed out. Yeah, I think so. I don't think the XFL has made that public yet. I think. I think Garrett Hartley has made it public uh, himself, but I think the right. XFL is waiting till Monday to make everything public, including the Cole Tracy situation, which is, right. uh, I'm sure Cole Tracy is uh, not, well, I'm sure he's not pleased, but on the other hand, he's probably smartly sitting back and waiting for another opportunity for him to arrive maybe just right away. Maybe he'll get picked yeah, up by the situation, team. The situation is such that, He's he doesn't have a uh, track record in the pros. He was a very good kicker at LSU. And then Seattle is going into the season, probably hedging their bets, saying, OK, should we get an experienced veteran kicker? Hartley, you know, I, for lack of a better term, I guess, kicks it out of the park in his tryout. The Dragons are impressed and they have to make the difficult decision of which kicker they want to go to. The promising young kicker in Tracy at LSU or the grizzled veteran in Hartley who's made kicks to take teams to Super Bowls. So. That's a tough call, but if, in Tracy's case, and I would say this for any of the XFL players that get cut, all it takes is uh, week one, one kicker missing two or three field goals, and you're the first name that comes up. So, you know, you hate to see that, but that's part of the game. If there's, if the week one, a kicker misses two or three crucial field goals, he could very, very easily be released, and Tracy could be the person who replaces them, so. I guess Cole Tracy is young, and he probably has other opportunities ahead of him. In fact, I hope he does, because... I have spoke to him uh, in this podcast, and uh, of course he was uh, he was a lot of fun to talk to, and very very young, uh, very smart, very energetic, and of course he did kick uh, he has kicked a winning field goal in his college career, so right right, uh, he's a very good kicker. 
He's yeah. a very good kicker, and I was uh, impressed. You know, it's interesting. The Dragons' initial kicker, Greg Joseph, ended up kicking for the Tennessee Titans, um, most recently in the AFC Championship game. And Tracy was brought in to replace Joseph. And then here you have a case where Hartley's coming in to replace Tracy. I would say for a lot of players like Cole Tracy um, that are considering potentially Team 9, I'm sure that's a subject we can get into, that um, it won't take much for them to get back into the league. I think a lot of these players, it's a little disheartening. But for like a kicker like Tracy, all he needs is the opportunity to get on the field and prove himself. I just think his lack of pro experience is probably why Dragons made the decision to go with Hartley. Uh, let's say he gets put on Team 9. Now, with kickers, uh, I think it's an interesting situation with kickers because Team 9 is meant as a practice roster to, to backfill teams if there's injuries. But kicker injuries are not that common. However, it's more common for a kicker to just have performance issues and then they, right. they lose their spot that way. You see that in the NFL like almost every week. There were teams that were cutting kickers and trying out like five to ten kickers every week. Um some teams like the Patriots went through three different kickers during the season. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's likely. I mean, it's possible that kicker, that there aren't very many kickers on Team 9 to begin with, but they may get quick phone calls. You know, if a team has an issue with their kicker or kicker struggles, like you said, there isn't, likely, there isn't a strong likelihood that there'll be kicker injuries per se. But the thing with Team 9 we got to remember is that you know, while it initially starts off as a 40 to 45-player reserve roster, those players that are initially on that roster are going to eventually be called up to the XFL because there's this thing in football called injuries. So the XFL as a league is going to have to constantly replenish Team 9 during the course of the season because in all likelihood, each XFL team is going to have anywhere from 5 to 10 season-ending injuries during the season. It's just the numbers game. It's the math, the reality of football. So... Um, we may see 40 players on the initial team nine, but by season's end, there may have been a hundred players or more that have spent time on team nine. That team nine roster is going to be a revolving door. There's no doubt about it. And uh, that'll be fun for us to watch that uh, go around. I think. For sure. And I, I think there might be some players that looking to get access into the league. And then when they see week one happen, they might say, you know what, I'll give this team nine deal a try. I'd love to any way I can to, get an opportunity to get in the league and play on Fox and ABC and ESPN and all that. So, so we'll see how that transpires, but it should be fascinating for transactions for sure. Yeah. You know, I think team nine, uh, my experience so far talking about team nine uh, with players in, in fact, and fans is they actually were not um, familiar with what team nine was. And of course, most people are not familiar, but I understand it is not a new thing for the commissioner, Oliver Luck, is it? No, absolutely not. You know, he um, this is a concept that comes from NFL Europe and they did it because, you know, obviously they were playing football games in Europe. So they wanted to have a roster of free agents stationed uh, uh, in Europe and not all over the United States. They wanted to make it easy to fly in players on short notice. And so the concept they came up with was, OK, any players that do not make an NFL Europe roster. Um, let's pick a group of them and have them training here in either Barcelona or what have you, and we'll have them at the ready to bring them in. And the teams are already familiar with these players because they had them in training camp, so they know the systems, etc. The other teams practiced against them, played against them, so they know the players as well. So it's a cost-efficient system in terms of uh, having to fly players all around. It's a way of guaranteeing that these players stay in shape and that they're ready to go and that they're coached well and all that. 
And it's a smart it's a smart move for a brand new league. You know, you you don't want to randomly start picking players out of the blue and seeing if they have interest or seeing if you can get them to try out. You want to have knowledge of specific players and be able to go through a list of players and, and then be able to pick and choose who you want to bring in if you have injuries to a particular position during any given week and you have to put players on IR, you can look for players on Team 9 to bring them in. There's been a lot of a lot of rumors of players that have been cut, and, and of course we talked about the, the Garrett Hartley and the Cole Tracy. Now another one that just came out was this Sean Oakman has been re-signed by the... LA Wildcats. Now this is totally on the rumor level, but it sounds right. like it has some veracity. I guess we'll find out on Monday whether that. I guess we'll find out. I guess we'll find out on Monday. The one thing I will say on that, it's very rare for a player to be cut prior to training camp for what appears as rumor-wise to be some type of character issue within the team, and then for that player to be brought back uh, as an official member of the 52-player roster without actually earning that spot. Now. I'm not discounting Sean Oakman's talents because he is very talented, physically gifted for sure, um, was a dominant player at some point there in Baylor. So it'd be great to see him in the league. It'd be great to see him get a second chance. But it's kind of a unique second chance. Usually, that's not usually how it works out. You know, he did not make it to training camp, did not end up on another XFL roster. So maybe him, uh, Oakman, and the Wildcats have, mended fences and they're they're willing to give him another opportunity i guess we're gonna have to wait to see on monday uh if the wildcats make that official and uh, if they do um you know i have a theory about this hmm. and i, I don't hear? often i don't often go out and <laughs> live with my theories but for you i'm gonna do this my theory is that because the story or the rumor actually it was not a rumor because winston coach winston moss said that there was problems, uh, conflict in the locker room. Right. My theory is that whoever he had a conflict in, with in the locker room is no longer there. That's one way of looking at it. You know, it's even still, if you have a team or a company or what have you, and you have an employee that, say, starts a fight or does something wrong to another employee, even if that initial employee is gone, um, you're still hesitant about bringing the person in. It's because of whatever actions they did to cause their release. So it is possible that now whatever player was on the team that Oakman had an issue with is no longer there. And perhaps that smooths things over and what have you, but it's obvious his conduct, um, Oakman's conduct is what got him released initially. One theory that's being floated out there. And since we're playing around, we're playing with the theory yeah, game. Of course. Is, yeah. is that the Wildcats are looking for any way to um, get a business boost by uh, bringing back a player that has some level of name recognition to boost ticket sales and interest in the franchise. Now, Winston Moss is someone who is all about football. Now, he doesn't really care for what the public thinks. So, and you see evidence of that already because two of their high-profile draft picks, Jeremiah Spice and Sean Oakland, were cut before training camp started. Their allocated quarterback, Luis Perez, was traded away. Rashad Ross, one of their top draft, kick, draft picks, was traded away. And these are all done for football reasons. The crazy theory, the conspiracy theory, is that Oakman is coming back for a non-football reason, uh, for more of a um, – 
business aspect. If we're going to play around with theories, it's not something I favor, but it's something that's out there. I, I like your theory too. In fact, that's um, maybe both of these theories are actually have some some weight in, in in reality. Now you mentioned about the Wildcats and their business strategy. Now the ticket sales have been rumored and uh, rumored that Seattle's was doing the best, but the LA Wildcats was uh, not doing so well. Is that what you heard? I've heard, you know, obviously what a lot of people have heard out there that uh, Seattle and St. Louis are doing really well, um, ticket sales wise. So I'm not surprised with Seattle. Seattle's a great sports market to begin with. They have tremendous sports fans. They're all, it's also a city that's open-minded. So like in order to, for a market to embrace the XFL, they got to be open-minded about the concept. So, and I think Seattle's done a good job with marketing. I think that the, the, their uniforms and their team name has been embraced heavily by the market. So I'm not surprised they've done well. I'm also not surprised St. Louis has done well uh, simply because of the fact that there's a driving force behind uh, St. Louis's interest in having a pro football team in their market again. So um, people are rallying around those those two franchises. As far as L.A. goes, it's difficult to say right now. L.A. is a really difficult market. It's tough because if you're if you have a pro sports team in L.A., you're competing against everything. You're even competing against the sun. It's really difficult to get fans to come out to your games there. A lot of people don't remember this, but Los Angeles for a long time was did not have a pro football team. Everybody kind of sort of remembers the LA Extreme, but for a long time, the Rams weren't there. The Raiders weren't there. Obviously, the Chargers weren't there. So a lot of LA does have great football fans, and they do well in the ratings for NFL games. But a lot of fans in LA are fans of all different teams, because if you grew up in LA the last 20 years, you had to pick a team. So there in L.A., there are fans of, Steel, of the Steelers, of the Cowboys, of the Packers, Patriots, etc. So um, L.A. is going to have a tough go of it in the early going. They're going to have to produce a good product. They're going to have to produce a winning team. And then eventually people catch on. One of the things, things that's in Los Angeles' favor is that they're not playing in a large stadium. So if they attract... 10,000, 15,000 fans in a 25,000 seat stadium, it will not, from an optic standpoint, look bad on TV and it'll look respectable. You know, so it's it won't look like an, uh, an empty stadium if that's the case there. L.A. has their work cut out for them. There's no question about it. But it is encouraging to see Seattle and St. Louis do well. There's going to be a lot of walk up business too. what the ticket sales are taking into account at the moment is uh, season ticket sales and all that. I think you'll see a lot of ticket sales take place the week of games and even the day of games. I think the ticket sales will be uh, driven by the success of the first week of the league as well. So if the league is uh, accepted decently, has decent acceptance in the first week, then the ticket sales will uh, will expand from there. Hopefully that's what happens. I know it didn't happen that way for the uh, Alliance. Um, hopefully the XFL can beat that. Now, how important are the ticket sales to the success of the league? They're important. Um, from a perception standpoint, I think it's important that these stadiums don't appear empty on television. I know that the networks have probably a way of shooting the stadiums to make it uh, to not make that as obvious that there aren't that many people at the stadium itself. Obviously, profitability is important. So ticket sales are important. But I think the league 
I think publicly for months now, has not set very high expectations for uh, the level of ticket sales that they expect in year one. They expect to put out a good product and they feel like word of mouth is going to help them over time. But you can't expect a lot of football fans to buy into a league initially, especially after what happened with the Alliance of American Football. It's a little harder as a first year league to sell season ticket packages than it would normally be. And uh, especially coming off the heels of what happened with the Alliance. So there's a lot of different factors there. It's important. No question about it. But I don't think it's the be all end all of the league. Well, yeah, I hope not, because uh, if you remember with the first XFL, the uh, stadium attendance was very good at the beginning and then it dropped off. It did drop off. There's no question about it. There's some markets that exceeded expectations after having what was reported at the time to be modest ticket sales. I remember vividly the San Francisco Demons were the league did not release a lot of information, but the San Francisco Demons reports were that they weren't doing very well in terms of selling season tickets. They ended up averaging 33,000 fans per game. They led the league in attendance. New York was also the same thing. Ticket sales were very modest. It did not appear that people were going to be coming out to the stadium, Giant Stadium at the time in February. So, um, and they ended up averaging 28,000 fans per game. Now, I'm saying, I'm not saying the current XFL teams are going to do those types of numbers. That would be amazing if that were to be the case. But you can see kind of the XFL strategy with them closing the upper bowls. You can also see the upper bowls of the stadiums. You can also see that um, their expectation level in that. They don't expect to sell 50,000, 60, 70,000 per game. So that, you know, so you can see that right out the gate there. So uh, it's going to be an interesting thing to follow as the season goes along, Att- uh, attendance, ratings, all that. But as a first-year league, you kind of have to expect peaks and valleys. So there's going to be weeks when attendance is not so great. There's going to be weeks where the ratings go a little bit lower, especially during March Madness. The XFL has to survive all the storms they're going to go through through year one. Exactly. It's a game of survival for them. And uh, and as we talked about before, briefly, that it's also a game of having a thick skin because yeah, there's right. liable to be a lot of criticism and they have to fight through that and move on and keep and produce the game of football that they're talking about producing this superior game of football with innovations. Right. And, you know, you even see it in social media during the live scrimmages, which were closed to the public. People were pointing out, hey, look, there's nobody in the stands. Ha. So, I mean, so, so, I mean, um, okay, know, people, uh, there are going to be it's, it's the world we live in. But there's going to be people in social media that that um, harp on the negative any way they can. And so that's just going to be part of it. And obviously, thick skin is an important part of it. They just, you know. It's a first-year league. People have to understand if you track any any sports league that has ever started, they, a lot of them were not smashing successes right out the gate. Right, of it took, course. It took time. It takes time. It really does take time to build a brand. It takes time to earn the public's trust. It takes – so I think you hope it's the reverse. We, you talked about – you mentioned it a few minutes ago how the original XFL started out uh, with great attendance and then it tailed off as the season went along. You kind of hope maybe the XFL starts off modestly, produces a great product, and then word of mouth turns where the attendance grows as the season goes. So, you know, where you're like, oh, wow, L.A. had only 10,000 in their home opener. But look now, they're close to a sellout by season's end. You know, you would love that 
to be the reverse. And that's not out of the realm of possibility. Especially if like LA's a really good team. They have eight or nine wins during the regular season. They look like they're headed to a championship. I mean, uh, that could change quickly. It, it depends how good the product is. Yeah, of course. Let's move on then. Um, now, I just saw this online and I've been watching some of the Vegas reactions to the XFL. And uh, did you see that Caesars Palace has given odds on XFL teams? Yeah, uh, interesting. Success. Yeah, it looks and, like the Vipers. Looks yep. like the Vipers and the um, the Renegades are two of the top favorites. Yeah, uh, the Rene- Renegades and the Roughnecks too are actually right in there. Yeah, the Roughnecks are in the mix there too. Um, it's not surprising that uh, the odds makers would go with a Florida team and two Texas teams, particularly with the who the coaches are in the league. Maybe slightly surprising on the Vipers end because there's a mixed bag out there of um, reaction in terms of Aaron Murray as a quarterback. Obviously, he was very successful in the SEC, but, you know, kind of up and down in the alliance and up and down in the NFL is mostly just a backup. But um, Vipers do have a lot of talent on their roster, Florida-based. So like in the alliance, the Orlando Apollos were the preseason favorite because of all the talent they had on their roster from Florida, even though this wasn't a territorial system with the XFL, if you look at the Vipers roster, it's loaded with players from USF, from Miami, from, from Florida, Florida state. So there's, and that's probably the, between Florida and Texas, those are the two most talented uh, hotbeds for football talent overall. So it's interesting. It's very, very, the odds are very interesting there. It's hard to bet against Bob Stoops, even with the Landry Jones injury They're Bob Stoops and how mummy running uh, the renegades there. And they put together a very good roster. So I can see why they would be one of the favorites. So the odds makers are putting a lot of weight on the coaching staffs. Yeah, no question about it. And it's kind of interesting with the roughnecks too, with uh, June Jones there and the run and shoot, they're looking at Connor cook and Philip uh, Walker, PJ Walker. And they're, they're figuring this is, you know, no matter who they choose a quarterback, this is going to be a good team. And June Jones' experience in the USFL and in the CFL kind of plays into um, his ability to adjust to the league rules and the speed of the game and all that. So, um, And if you look at those top three teams there, two of them are coaches directly from the Canadian Football League. And so, um, you know, 25-second play clock. Those guys are used to playing with a shorter play clock. So you would think that they'd have an advantage over, say, um, a head coach like a Kevin Gilbride who has, doesn't have that much experience playing with a 25-second play clock. Speaking of uh, coaches that have less experience with that play clock, uh, in their rankings, the last place teams, the two that they placed at the last in the, in the bottom, were the St. Louis Battlehawks and the Seattle Dragons. I think that's because those two teams have – I don't want to say questionable quarterback situations, but unproven. So, like, if you look at St. Louis, they have a really talented young quarterback in Jordan Te'amu. Um, they have Taylor Haneke. Um, and then if you look at the other team there, Seattle, Brandon Silvers is a small body of work in the Alliance. B.J. Daniels um, doesn't have an extensive body of work in the pros as a starter. So um, it doesn't surprise me that the odds makers would look at the quarterbacks and kind of determine – from that aspect, uh, which teams they project to win the most games. You know, I don't know. How, actually, I don't know how Vegas does it. Uh, I know they do it well when they do these uh, odds because they don't often lose a lot of money at Vegas. That's exactly right. So they've got something going for them. But, but of course, people have been known to um, 
to put money down on a on a bottom ranked team and then make some money. So maybe someone will do that. Maybe the that Seattle might not Giants. be a bad play. You know, there figures to be a lot of parity in the XFL. Um, recently wrote about this in an article, but there's a strong likelihood that a team that goes five and five will make the playoffs. But when yeah. you're talking about an eight team league with four teams making the playoffs, um, it's not out of the realm of possibility a team that goes 500 during a regular season makes the playoffs. It happened in the original XFL. So, um, and I, I can certainly see it happen in the AF. So if you're going to place a bet on a team to win three games, hey, you got a shot. You got a halfway decent shot. They're going to win four or five games, especially in a league that's going to be, you know, closely contested. Right. So there might be an opportunity here for uh, for a gambler to uh, do well. Now, uh, one more question about the XFL. Now, we're coming up to opening day. Uh, and of course, that's going to be the most exciting day that we've been waiting for for almost two years now. Now, will we see Vince McMahon on opening day? What's your take on that? I'm really hoping so. Um, like I, um, I know the whole mission statement of the league is to be nothing like the original XFL, and the face and the voice of the original XFL was Vince McMahon. So he, um, he was all over the place, pumping his chest out about how great the league was going to be and all that. And while the league was very innovative, unfortunately, we, we know the story, how it worked out. So I would like week one in D.C. on ABC. I'd love to see Vince McMahon trot out to the middle of the field and reintroduce everyone to the XFL. I think it would be a nice little tip of the hat, like an homage to 2001. Whether or not the league does it, that remains to be seen. I'm kind of, as we get closer to the start of the uh, regular season, we're two weeks away, as you mentioned, um, I'm kind of wondering if, Vince uh, trots out anywhere in the media to hype up the league, even just a little bit. He might not. But if at the bare minimum, it would be great to see him out there week one. I think we will see him somewhere, somewhere in that first weekend or or the day before, somewhere either in the media or on the field. We will see if we will hear from him and see him. And it may be uh, a very brief uh introduction to the xfl but i i don't think he can he can introduce this league without showing up and saying something right i I think it would i think it makes a lot of sense the dc game is also kind of interesting because there could be a decent level of controversy if the current president of the united states shows up there as well that's a topic for another time but um it could be have a couple different uh major guests there with vince mcmahon and the president so um yeah, I, I think I think we'll see him in some respect, but I, I don't think he'll be front and center uh, pumping up the league like he did 19 years ago. Yeah, not not pumping us up as much as before. Now, you mentioned the president. Now, I know we don't want to talk about the president too much here because we don't want to go off topic. Right. But uh, my thought that is if the president showed up at the game, that poor Vince might take a back seat to the president. I mean, yeah, it would overshadow him no matter where Trump shows up. He got a, Trump was at the college football championship and got a pretty decent response there in New Orleans. You know, obviously uh, social media, some people in social media wasn't too happy with him being there, but that's the reality of the situation. Whoever the president is of the United States is usually going to be at a big game. The only reason I bring up DC is because obviously that's the home uh, of the white house. So and then so there's a possibility that's he's, he's a guest of the league at that game, um, you know, but probably want to avoid politics altogether if you can. And like you stated, it would probably would overshadow everything else. So maybe it's not a good idea. Who knows? Yeah, I think Vince has our, has gone out and said that he likes to avoid politics with this league. Uh, I don't know if he can bring himself to do that, but let's not talk about politics. Let's go to the Guardians. 
Right. Now, you've been following the Guardians training camp really closely. You've written a couple of great articles that are posted on XFLboard.com. Uh, people have read them. People love them because of all the information you're providing. What are your impressions of how this team is doing? I really like the defensive side of the ball. I like the coaching staff they have in place with Jim Herman and Chris Dishman. I love the secondary. I think there are a lot of players in that secondary. A lot of people know who Jamar Summers is because he rated so highly. Um and the Alliance of American Football, Pro Football Focus, had him, had him as one of their top three corners. But I think there are a lot of um, rising young stars in that secondary that are not household names right now that will end up being by the tail end of the season. Someone like LSU's Terrence Alexander, who um, Ed Ergeron called one of the smartest players that he's ever coached. Um, I think they're, they're going to be good on the defensive side of the ball and in a league that you're going to need to be. Um, the offensive side is interesting. The coaching staff loves Matt McGloin. He's done a very good job. They've had a little bit of um, inconsistency during training camp, but a lot of that has to do with the moving parts on their offensive line and at wide receiver. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly they gel to start the season. There's talent there. Um, so we'll see how it goes with them. I think being week one at home and having just played the Vipers kind of helps. But they have a couple of issues that they're going to have to iron out in terms of their wide receiver position. Two of their best targets on offense are going to be Tanner Gentry and D'Angelo Yancey. The word I've gotten early on is that both players are injured, but it's not expected to be long term. They could be ready by week one. The the XFL hasn't released a lot of information about their rosters, nor nor have they um, as far as injuries go. But I think it's important for the Guardians to get those two players back for week one against Tampa. So is that why the uh, the Guardians traded with the Roughnecks to uh, get uh, Joe Horn Jr. on the Guardians? The it's possible. They had a lot of competition at the position. Like right now, currently, there are six Guardians on their 52-player roster. There are two players that are listed on injured reserve, as I mentioned. And they released four wide receivers um, off their roster. And then a few weeks back, they released three wide receivers who many expected to be part of the team in DeMarcus Ayers, uh, uh, Damon Sheehy, Giuseppe, and Octavius Miles. So they and they brought in three new receivers. So Joe Horn Jr. made the 52-player roster at least initially. We'll see what happens come Monday, but um, he's part of the six that's in the group. And yeah, they the team has a a, a lot of uh, hope and faith in him. So that there's a reason why they made the deal to bring him in. I know you wrote an article on XFL board uh, where you attempted to project the fifth, the final 52-man roster for the Guardians, and uh, you actually, I think you said it that way, that you uh, were going to attempt to project it, of course. And are you excited to see the Guardians' final roster and see how close you were? Yeah, I am actually. You know, based on uh, the reports that are out there, it appears to be pretty close. Um, you know, that the team is kind of a standard, uh, like comparable to an NFL roster in terms of how many players are keeping at specific positions. Like it appears that they're going to keep eight offensive linemen, which is usually what NFL teams do. Obviously five starters and then three backups. Usually you'll have a player that can play both tackle and guard as one of your backups. You'll have a player who can play center. If anything were to happen to your starting center. So, and you'll have one player who's kind of a swing lineman. So teams try to stray away from carrying more than eight because if you do so, then it hurts other positions. You can't carry as many defensive backs or linebackers or what have you. So I am looking forward to seeing the the official list that will come out on Monday. But I think uh, 
it appears at the moment that everything's kind of going according to plan, kind of what I suspected. That's probably because the Guardians are a little bit more, uh, they built their team a little with a little bit more thought, and so they don't really have to make a lot of changes at the last minute. You know, if the, let's see, this is a big if, but if they felt that there was a more longer-term issue in terms of their wide receiver injuries to D'Angelo Yancey and Tanner Gentry, it's possible that they could claim uh, a wide receiver that was cut to uh, cover themselves. But I, I think um, we'll find out for sure on Monday if they have or haven't claimed any wide receivers that were released off another XFL team roster. But um, I, I think they, I think they, they for a long time now they've had their their roster set since back October. But there have been some changes along the way. On the you can tell, you know, transactions. I said this in my article. Speak louder than words. And the Guardians went out and made several changes to the back end of their receiver depth chart and several changes to their offensive line. There are players on their offensive front that weren't here back in October, like Avery Young, Damian Mama, who they just picked up from uh, Los Angeles. And those two players right there may end up being first day starters. So that's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic to these to the roster movement that's taking place, especially with the Guardians. Now, you mentioned some trades, of course, they, and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation about Luis Perez coming to the Guardians from L.A. and for uh, Charles or Chad Kanoff. Now, what right. motivated this deal? You know, I, uh, in the Guardians front office, there are members there that have experience in the Alliance American Football, and they have a high opinion of Luis Perez, who, you know, to be fair, um, his performance in the alliance with Birmingham was a mixed bag. He got off to a good start, kind of slumped in midseason, ended up losing his starting job, ended up splitting time with Keith Price. And then by season's end, he started to get the arrow turned in the right direction. Obviously, the, the alliance folded. Um, I think Perez was brought in at the moment to be a backup. And it's kind of an insurance policy for McGloin, who the, the franchise is happy with. So it's a bit of a fall from grace from Luis Perez to go from being the, the face of the franchise from L.A. initially and then now being a backup. But he's coming into the process late with New York. So even if they have designs of him being a future starter, he's only he only has a couple of weeks to get up to speed with his teammates, the playbook, entire offense. So it's a good spot for him. It's a change of scenery for him, but it might be a little bit of humbling for him. It's almost like starting over again. So he's going to be at the best number two. And with the hope that he might be able to move up to number one, but he's literally an insurance policy. Yeah, that's the way it looks at the moment. I mean, could, is it possible that the Guardians could uh, make a decision and trade uh, a quarterback off the roster, like, say, a Marquise Williams or somebody like that? Marquise has experience with Daryl Johnson, who's with Dallas. He was also has experience with Mike Riley, who's in Seattle. So. It's possible Marquise Williams could be trade bait, could be traded if the team decides to carry only two quarterbacks. But um, at the moment, Perez starts off as a backup, and then where they go from there, that remains to be seen. If the team decides to go with two quarterbacks, don't you think that's a little light? Uh, there's a good chance we're going to be looking at some injuries on some of these teams. Well, what they could do, and that's a good point, what they could do is they could bring – they if they did trade one of their three quarterbacks, who I think are all capable of being starters – I think they could bring back somebody like a Garrett Fugate, who's with them in training camp, who had some good moments during camp, who has a live arm. If he, if someone like that is a priority practice squad player for them or on Team 9, it's possible that you know they could trade quarterback, strengthen another position, and then bring back Garrett to be the third string. 
So based on the fact that they've got connections to other quarterbacks that they could use, they're not afraid to uh, winnow down their roster to just two quarterbacks. And some uh, teams in the NFL do that. I mean, when you look at the NFL, the NFL plays a 16-game season. The XFL plays a 10-game season. So some teams will roll the dice and only carry two active quarterbacks on their roster. And they'll do it, and they'll put a third quarterback on their practice squad if need be. So um, it's possible if you're trying to maximize roster value. It's a little bit of a gamble, but it's possible that a team here or there could decide to go into the season with only two. It doesn't mean that it has to stay that way for the entire season, but it's, it's, a, it's a possibility because it does happen in the pro game. So maybe we'll have to wait and see how the XFL game, uh, how it chews up quarterbacks or doesn't. Uh, with the fast-paced game. Well, you can see like some of the other teams carrying uh, a lot of quarterbacks. Like St. Louis right now, on their roster, they have four quarterbacks. Right. So, And they just brought in Nick Fitzgerald, who's kind of listed as a quarterback, but is more of a gadget-type player. He's going to be used wide receiver, tight end, halfback. He might factor into the double forward pass game and um, a lot of the red zone plays and all that. He broke uh, Tim Tebow's records. Um, he's a good running quarterback, so... In the SEC, he was anyway. So, And there are several teams in the XFL that have those types of quarterbacks, like Eric Dungy with Dallas, Quentin Flowers with Tampa. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how these teams use uh, the quarterbacks on their roster. You could see two on the field at the same time for many offensive sets. It's a pain in the neck, for lack of a better term, for the defenses that have of to prepare for it. So. If you're these defenses in the XFL are going to have to be ready for Aaron Murray and Quentin Flowers to come out together on the field, um, Eric Dungy and Philip Nelson in Dallas, and they have to prepare for the possibility that they could be seeing a double forward pass or a trick play. So um, it's just something extra for the defensive coordinators to prepare for. And from a fan aspect, it's a lot of fun, just the possibility of some trickery going on. There's so much to look forward to with this league. And it comes out, of course, the uh, opening game is in two weeks from today. And I'm excited about it. I know you're excited about it. You've been waiting a long time for this. So uh, go XFL, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is we've we've come to this point now. And it's terrific that we're we're getting clo- as close as possible to it. And um, yeah, week one is just going to be a lot of fun as a football fan, um, as someone who's been married to this concept my entire life. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, thanks, Mike. I wish you all the best, and I hope I hope it, it is as much fun as you dream it will be. And as a matter of fact, I predict it will be as much fun as you as you predict. Thanks for coming to the podcast today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks again to our guest, Mike Mitchell. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. You're welcome to come back next Sunday, where we will have more guests and more XFL. Until next time, this was your host, Mark Nelson, and I hope you enjoyed XFL Extra, the XFLboard.com podcast. <laughs>